0: Right. And so today we're gonna um, go into really one of my favorite stories in the Bible, one of the most beautiful stories, and it's found in the book of Ruth. How many of you love Ruth? How many of you have, have read Ruth? You know that it's only four short chapters. You know, I timed myself reading it, and I didn't read it quickly, I just immersed myself in it, and it took less than 20 minutes. So I urge you after today, go home and read it when you have time. It's such a beautiful story about how God takes an irredeemable, hopeless situation and then does a powerful work of redemption, does a powerful work of transformation, does a powerful work of revealing a destiny that comes from, 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 from something that He can only craft out in His story for us. Amen? Let's read from, um, <clears throat> okay, my sermon today is called Ordinary People extraordinary stories, and this has been really speaking to my heart, that when we choose to step into the the story that God is writing for us, we might be normal and ordinary, but God begins to craft the most beautiful story out of our lives. God begins to do the most amazing things that we could not even conceive, that we could not even uh, imagine to happen, because He's an extraordinary God. And it takes certain certain faithfulness from our part, and it takes certain boldness and courage to, to have confidence in His story that He's writing for us, and then to reach, reach out and grab it for our lives. Amen? Okay, so let's read from Ruth chapter 1, and uh, it's a long chapter. It's 22 verses. Normally, we don't read so much in, in, uh, in the church service, but let's, let's take the time to read the whole chapter together. All right, even so that we can get the whole, the whole uh, background story to, to Ruth. Are you ready? Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name of was eh, eh, Elimelech. His <laughs> wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, and the other (laughs) Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, eh, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray over the word today. Dear Lord, we ask that you you be here with this soul, oh Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you just be here to reveal what you want to reveal from your word, that you speak to us personally, that you do such a work of power, oh Lord. Even as we open our hearts to to, to what you have to show us, even as we open to our hearts to experiencing you and encountering you, encountering you in a fresh way today. God, we just commit this the rest of this. Uh, sermon and service into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. And so you see that this this family has been through so much devastation, so much tragedy. They went through famine, and in order for, for them to to, to survive, maybe, the father brought the whole family to Moab, a foreign land with pagan gods. He brought them away from the promised land. And the reason, if you read the background into Judges, that there was famine in the land was because Israel, Judah, had been, s- been so unfaithful to God, had been bringing in idolatry, and so that famine had come upon the land. And they f- sought refuge in Moab, a foreign country with foreign gods. And then what happens? The husband of Naomi passes away. The two sons pass away. And they're left uh, with nothing as widows. Because it's a patriarchal society at that time, the culture was that everything was linked to the man. The right to own land was linked to the man. Your right to earn a livelihood was linked to a man. And so when when all the men in the family passed on, they really had nothing. Nothing else to turn to Naomi was already too old to find another husband to have other children her Her lineage was was, was essentially being cut off, and then they' just leaving he's just leaving those two daughters-in-law and these daughters-in-law are, are very good daughters-in-law if you if you read through the passage just now, how many of us are very close to our mothers-in-law you know normally when you hear people talk about their mothers-in-law. You know, there's a little bit of joking or, <laughs> I don't know, maybe even condescension sometimes. You know, like, they, 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 they it's not always in the most positive light, but you see these two amazing daughters-in-law who are foreigners, who are Moabites, take care of Naomi so well. Stick with her. Because what happens when the their husbands pass away is that the, so- the social ties of them to their mother-in-law is actually severed already. They have no official responsibility to their mother-in-law already. And not only that, Naomi releases them in very clear language of any, any sense of responsibility, any sense of obligation they might have had if you read just now in the passage. He says, go home to your family. Go home back to Moab, you know. Let me bear this burden myself. You have no more ties to me. The Lord bless you. Yahweh bless your journey back. Yahweh bless your life and bless you even as you hope to find a new husband and rebuild from scratch again. And so you see that Orpah turned back. But the most amazing thing about chapter 1 is Ruth's response. As you go out there and you read through the book, you know, there is, it's so amazing how Ruth responded. It's really the most unexpected, shocking way to respond. She says, I will follow you wherever you go. I will fulfill my responsibility to you above the call of duty, above what is expected of me, above what might be obligated of me. Your people shall become my people. I'm going to go with you to what will be a foreign land for me. Your God shall be my God. There's no reason for her to follow Naomi back. If Naomi goes back, she will only be able to stay at the lowest caste of that society with the orphans and the widows and the destitute. And all they can do is beg and scrape for survival. There is no future and no hope for them at all. And it's such an amazing response when she says, I will follow you. I will be faithful to you, mother-in-law. And not only that, she says, your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And what is her experience of this Yahweh from Israel, this God from Israel? What would she have seen? She would have seen her husband's family seek refuge away from, from Judah, from Israel, all right? There's a famine there. You know, they're not experiencing the blessing of God. Then she would have seen the tragedy after tragedy that, that besieged that family, the death of the, 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 her, her, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, and her husband. All she would have known is what she heard from her husband about this God. But somewhere along the line, she must have encountered Yahweh as well. You know, as, as that family brought stories over about this God of Israel as a family told about maybe the exodus from egypt as a family told about the you know how the presence of god followed them and and, and settled with them <clears throat> she chose to be faithful not only to naomi but to yahweh the god of israel and you see that later in the verse naomi's uh mindset is, is it makes it even more difficult to imagine how ruth came to that point because Naomi is saying, you know, maybe God is punishing me. And I'm I'm, I'm sure things would have gone through her mind. Maybe we should not have left the promised land to go to Moab, to a foreign land with foreign gods, pagan land. Maybe my husband made a mistake. And then maybe my sons should not have married foreign women. You know, and so all these things would have gone through her mind and like, did we completely mess up? Did we make all the wrong decisions? Is this why God is punishing me? Is this why all this affliction follows me? And so this is the conversations that she would be having with Naomi about God. But somewhere, Naomi knows that the God of Israel is the one true God. And she says, I'm going to follow your God. I'm going to follow this God you've been telling me about. I'm going to follow this God and be faithful to Him. You know, it reveals so much about Ruth. It reveals so much about the nature of faithfulness that God requires from us. It reveals that true faithfulness is costly. To be truly faithful is a very costly thing, especially in the face of the adversity that you will go through. To be Faithful requires courage and determination. You know, I did a quick search on the internet for statistics about persecution. And at this point, they show that on average, 322 Christians are killed every month for their faith. 214 churches are destroyed and burned every month for standing for God. 772 acts of violence happen every month, in whatever form, whether it's rape, whether it's, you know, uh, physical violence. These acts of violence happen 772 times every month. When these people choose to follow Jesus, when these people choose to be faithful to Jesus, there is such a cost to pay that requires courage, and determination, and boldness, and conviction, because there's no other way they would do it otherwise. It's not an easy walk, and maybe we don't experience the same persecution that that, that many countries face. We, or Maybe not yet, you know? <laughs> but at some point in our lives, we're going to face some adversity. We're going to face when, when everything around seems to be in despair, when everything seems to be a tragedy around us. And then we have to make a choice at that point whether to remain faithful to God, whether to remain faithful to those around us. The second thing that jumped out at me was the depth of despair that Naomi felt. You saw when she went back into to her hometown, to Bethlehem, what was her... Her her response, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. My name is no longer Naomi. My name is Mara. In Hebrew, it means bitter. You can tell that not only is she describing herself as feeling despair, she has owned it in such a way that she has accepted that hopelessness already. There's a difference between saying I'm depressed and I'm sad and I'm really affected and I'm upset and saying that this depression defines me. Call me depression. Call me despair. Call me hopelessness. She had really nothing to look forward to anymore in her mind. Absolutely no hope. No way out. No light at the end of the tunnel. That was the depth of her despair. Not only does she say that, she says, I left full. I had my husband and my sons and I returned empty. I returned home completely empty. You know when you go back to hometown for your Chinese New Year, you meet your family. Sometimes you don't meet them for one year, two years and then you meet them, right? And you, you see some of the cousins and some of your aunties and uncles get a bit competitive Sometimes, who got, the, who got the latest promotion, <laughs> how is someone's career is going, who got married, who had children. You know, and you, you start comparing notes. You start telling about some of the things you've been going through, some of the things you want to shout about. Naomi goes back home, and all she can say is that tragedy has emptied my life. I am completely empty. You know, there was one time when I came back from overseas. I, I, I had been with my family overseas for, for 10 years. Uh, and I came back when I was 16 years old. <coughs> uh, that was two years ago. No. Uh <laughs> you know, I, ca- I came back and and I just want to share that when I was 15, I received my full-time call in Hong Kong. And I was so on fire. I, it was just boiling out of me, like I wanted to serve God with every second, every ounce of my being, and I came back when I was 16 with that mindset, I was like, God, show me what to do, (laughs) you know, and I was like, I'm going to do anything for you, I'm going to live for you, I'm going to walk for you, I'm going to serve you all the way, God, and the three years after I came back was really the most difficult I had ever, ever experienced in some of the things that went on in my life. Even in terms of ministry, um, it felt so difficult to come back to the culture of Malaysia. It was like a reverse culture shock. I'd been away so long. i have been away for 10 years. And I came back wanting to serve, you know, experiencing a certain, a different culture of, of, of how God was moving somewhere else. And I came back with that mindset of how to serve here. And it felt like every time I stepped out, every time I wanted to do something, I was beaten down because I was so different. I don't know how, how many of you might have come back after three years in Australia and felt like, oh, some frustrations. Some frustrations with, with <coughs> how some things are done maybe because you've seen it done differently. And, and some frustrations with with how you wanna serve, how you wanna pour out, but you seem to be blocked at every angle. Every time I stepped out, it's like I was told that I was too um too I don't know, too intense, too passionate, you know? <laughs> I still am very intense and passionate, I think. But <clears throat> it was so difficult. I was too raw, you know. I was like, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? And every time, I felt like I was beaten back. And at that point, I was so on fire that really, I felt, like I just want to serve God, but why can't I come back here and serve you? Why can't I pour out the way I, feel, I, I thought that I was supposed to pour out? It affected so much. It even affected my faith at a certain point because I was like, God, this is everything I believed in. This is, this is to the, my DNA, to my soul. I want to pour out for you. Why won't you let me? Why are the people around me blocking me? And after three years, I was just down on my knees before God, and I was crying. I was just weeping, and I said, God, I am so empty. I don't know what to do. Is everything I held on to wrong? I just want to serve you, but I don't know if I can do it in this country in this culture. And God spoke to me in that room that day. He said, now you are empty. Finally, I can use you. (laughs) Oh, man. I, I think some of you who are in ministry know what I mean. And now you are empty of yourself, of your your thoughts, of your ideas, of your ideologies, of your ego, empty of everything you think that you can do, now I can fill you because you have removed those things that prevented me from filling you the way I wanted to fill you. Now I can pour out into your life. Now I can use you. And that was the year that my ministry took a turn in this church. I don't know. It, they would have sensed that there was a shift. That was a difference. And I just said, whatever you want me to do, I won't do. Maybe God moves differently in different cultures. Maybe God moves differently in different churches. You know, until I'm willing to lay it completely down and surrender it to God, God can't use the giftings that He has placed in me. And so, at that point was when I realized that our God is a God who specializes in taking empty situations and bringing fullness. You need to be empty before God can truly fill you up. He specializes in taking hopeless situations and bringing redemption. He specializes in taking broken, empty vessels and creating a beautiful story to serve Him. Amen? (coughs) Where you can only see brokenness, God sees a beautiful story of redemption. I don't know if any of you are going through seasons of emptiness today, seasons of dryness, where all you see around you is, is tragedy, is adversity. I want you to know that When you step out in faithfulness, in the midst of your adversity, God can use your adversity as a window of opportunity in order to bring out a greater purpose, in order to bring out a greater story, in order to reveal His loving kindness over your life, over your future, you have to let go of it first. And say, God, it's all yours. I don't have time today to to go through the rest of the book of Ruth. You know, if you read through it, there's so many rich theological themes found in every chapter. You know, and maybe in future I'll go back into you know preaching about from a different chapter. You know, but as you read through ruth you realize that her story unfolds step by step that as she continues to be faithful she co- she co- she starts to step in alignment with the story that god is writing for her life it is through her steps of faithfulness that uh, she's able to step into that story that means our faithfulness is completely integral to 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 how God wants to bring about that story. And, and you see, her first step was to follow Naomi and say, yes, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to follow your God. If she didn't do that, Naomi said, go back and, and go back to your home, go back to your, your gods. If she didn't do that, she would have gone back to Moab and gone back to her pagan gods. And that would have been the end of her story. But then, Later on in chapter 2, I'm not going to go into detail, but, you know, she, <coughs> she decides to, to, to go through the, the barley wheat fields and start to collect the, the remnants on the floor. You know, once the harvesters, off harvesters have gone through, um, they allow some of the destitute, the poor and, and ones in poverty, to walk behind and start to collect the scraps that fall so that they're able to survive, so they're able to have a little bit to eat. And so she does that, and she diligently goes to that field, and she starts collecting, and she starts doing that in faithfulness so that her and her mother-in-law can survive. And it's those steps of faithfulness that brought her into the fields of Boaz, who eventually would be her husband and play the role of redeemer as well. It is those simple steps of faithfulness that you don't even see are going to make any difference in your life that aligns you with the will of God, that aligns you with this amazing story that God wants to craft over your life. And then later on in chapter 3, Naomi instructs her to go propose to Boaz. <laughs> Do You guys read the story? Isn't it amazing? So long ago... The, the girl proposes to the guy, you know. How many of you feel that it's okay for a girl to propose to a guy? Give me a wave. Give me a wave. Me a wave. Oh, more guys than girls, okay. I didn't see a single girl put up your hand. How many of you feel that it should be the guy who proposes? Come on. <coughs> <laughs> the girls are, you know. Okay, there's a guy here as well, okay. But, but she, she, you know, she steps out in obedience and she proposes to him. She says, would you be my kinsman redeemer? And, and there's so many steps of faithfulness that she, she, she goes through, and it takes courage, and it takes boldness, and it's in, in the midst of adversity, and it's difficult. But she steps out in faith to do it. And it begins to reveal God's work of redemption in her life and her mother-in-law's life. Not only that, her steps of faithfulness begin to intersect with another person's steps of faithfulness. We find that Boaz is also a very faithful man, so faithful to God. The reason why he even lets people come to his fields and collect the scraps is because of a law back in in Moses' time that was given in God's loving kindness where the poor and the destitute are supposed to go there, allowed to go there and collect. He even tells his servants, leave a bit more leave a bit more so that they can collect a bit more. That is the compassion of God revealed through His law and then put into effect by the faithfulness of man. And not only that, the kinsman redeemer role is also part of the Mosaic law. The law of Moses given where what happens is if if a, a, a husband passes away, his brother is supposed to um, you know, marry the, the the woman and take care of her. But because both Naomi's Sons had passed away, there was no one to fulfill that role. And so Boaz was a bit more of a a relative, but close enough to fulfill that role of kinsman redeemer. Also part of God's loving kindness shown in his law, affected by the faithfulness of man. And so Boaz is such a faithful man as well. I don't know if you guys. Imagine him to be like an old boarding guy. No, he was a good guy, you know, and he was, he was so faithful to God, following his law and going above and beyond following the law. It's, just, it's not just following the law, but doing it in the spirit that God intended for that law to be carried out. This was Boaz. And God intersects stories of faithfulness as we step on in faithfulness. And it gives us a glimpse into how he wants his holy community to function. He wants His holy family to function. If all of us would begin to step out like Boaz and Ruth and and live lives of faithfulness in the midst of adversity, you know, she had nothing to benefit from following Naomi. She had nothing to gain. All she had was hopelessness in store for her. But she was faithful. If we all were able to make those decisions in our daily lives, in our daily steps, how would the community of God be transformed today? And so, you see that her faithfulness brings her directly in line with this amazing story that God is writing for her life. And where there was despair, there is joy when she marries Boaz. Where there was hopelessness, there is so much hope and redemption. Where Naomi had no heir and no husband to, you know, no lineage to continue, when Boaz, you know, um, married uh, Ruth, he also then had the tie to Naomi, and they had a son called Obed, and the lineage was preserved. And out of Obed's line... Ruth became the great grandmother of you guys know, right? David, the greatest king of Israel. And in David's lineage is a royal line of Jesus. Ruth is a is a is a Moabite woman, a foreigner, from following of foreign gods. And then, you know, she got this experience with this this um, this family from Israel, and she decides to follow Yahweh, and and this normal person, foreigner, who used to follow f- uh, foreign gods, becomes part of the royal lineage of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Isn't that amazing? Our destiny is, is directly linked to our daily steps of obedience. The realization of your destiny is directly linked to your daily steps of obedience. Obedience in the face of adversity, obedience when, when everything tells you that you can't see the love of God, that you can't see the blessing of God, when you can't see the hope and the plan of God. That is what it takes I just want to end with a story. You know, in May 1998, my whole family was in Indonesia. Some of us are too young to remember the impact of the Asian financial crisis. How many of you remember that time? So we were in Indonesia, and it was very, very bad there. You want to change the slide? You see this newspaper clipping? Sorry, the quality is not very good because the Chinese newspapers are very cheap and they, they use like cheap material. And so that's my family. Huh? <laughs> that's me with long hair, yes. Um, it will never happen again. My mom is trying to smile. You know, we were evacuated from from the worst part of, of when that crisis hit in Indonesia, when the mobs hit when the rioting happened. Every day we were receiving news of mobs going through neighborhoods, breaking into homes, ransacking things, and pulling people out and beating them, killing them, raping them. There was one day that a mob went right past our neighborhood and we thought we were gone. We already received news. Somehow they decided to skip our neighborhood and ransack the the supermarket right down the street from our home. They burned all the Chinese businesses, all the shop lots. They raped the women. They stopped cars and they pulled you out to see whether you were Chinese, to beat you and kill you. I was seeing news uh, segments of my Korean friends. (laughs) It's quite funny. They thought they were Chinese, so they would stop pulled out and beaten up before they, they realized they were shouting, I am Korean, I am Korean, you know. <laughs> but like you could see it every day in the news, it was just such a difficult time to be in. There was one day my, my, my father drove out from the office. He couldn't get home because the whole highway was filled with burning cars. He turned back and slept in the office until they cleared it up the next day to come home. So finally, we, we called the embassy and we asked, what do we do? And they said, come, come here right now. You know, we will provide protection in the embassy. And so at 10.30 p.m. that night, we drove out, lights off, keeping our engine as quiet as possible, hoping against all hope that we would not encounter a mob. We managed to reach the, the embassy safe and sound. We slept there for two nights on the floor. And then we were evacuated in the old Hercules planes uh, you know in, in the in the Air Force Malaysian Air Force Ooh, they did a really good thing <laughs> you know and this is the back of the plane it opens up and I had no idea that there would be pictures you know I was so tired and you know um, you're supposed to be wearing your flight suits in, in on those netting I was freezing because I didn't know I was wearing shorts and, and a sh- you know a short sleeve shirt so the whole uh, and it's a slow, slow plane. It's not like your commercial planes. It took six hours to fly from Jakarta here. I was freezing the whole time, and I was tired, and then the, the, the back door opens, and I, you know, like the paparazzi, the, all the lights, you know. <laughs> and that was, that was what we went through at that time. <clears throat> you know, we, our family had all our plans laid out. We all already ap- were applying for universities in, in America, Our whole family was supposed to go there and then get our green card and settle there. Perfectly laid out. Finances laid out, everything. And then everything is thrown into mayhem where we didn't even know whether we would escape with our lives. You know, my four years of high school, I was in four different schools. (laughs) And then three different countries. (laughs) Everything was just in mayhem. So unsettling, we didn't know what god's plan was we didn't know what was going to happen, but then when we when I came back to Malaysia when I was in Hong Kong as well when I got my full- time call, you know really I sought to serve God with faithfulness and just trust his plan for my life, not knowing what's gonna what's going to entail we, we I was, me and my siblings studied all over the place we we, we didn't follow our original plan one sister went to uh, Singapore under the you know the scholarship uh, working system and then another went to Penang, another went to Ireland and I stayed in, in Sunway here <coughs> and, uh, and we, we really didn't know what to do, where to go what God had in store for us but as I see my life and I, as i chosen to follow every step that he has laid out for me I can look back and, and see things that I would not have it any other way If I had not come back from Indonesia, I would have never met my wife. And she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I'm not just saying this because she is here. But it's true. I mean, aside from salvation, you know, (laughs) aside from Jesus, she is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I will never find... Another Sarah in the whole world. I mean, there are other people named Sarah, but uh, <laughs> but I will never find another person like her. You know, and 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 I don't know how to how to express my gratefulness to God. You know, we would probably be in America. I would be chasing my career. Most of my friends from back then in international school, they're not married. And if they are, they don't have kids. That's a different priority, you know, for a lot of them. There's always a wanderlust. They always need to be traveling. They will go one month in Paris to immerse themselves in the culture. You know, they will do all these kind of things, feeling like if they don't do something regularly, they will miss out on life. And there's this restlessness in international third culture children like me. But I've never felt so settled. We have three beautiful children, you know, which are more precious than than, than I could ever describe, and I would not be following my full-time call to follow God today if I had gone to America. I'm very sure of that. If everything had gone as planned, if my perfect plans, you know, had worked out perfectly, I wouldn't be serving God today. I wouldn't have this fire inside me, realizing that there is only one way for me. There's only thing that's going to satisfy me, and that is to be at the center of God's will. Can I ask the worship team to go up? this message has been heavy on my heart to to tell you of my confidence that God is the ultimate story writer. No one else can write your story. You want to hold on to that pen and think that you can write your story better? Only God is big enough to write your story. That's what's on my heart today. I want to challenge you to trust in His loving kindness, to trust in His love, to trust that He who began a good work in you shall complete it, to trust that He works all things for the good of those who love Him, that even as you follow Him, even as you step out in faithfulness, that He's going to reveal the greatest story that you could ever conceive, that you could ever imagine, and more. That life with God is is a great adventure. If you step out in courage and boldness, if you step out in faithfulness, thank you, Jesus, Lord, I'm a son. We just sing this song, and everyone just stand up, even as we let the Spirit of God minister today.